Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Amen. Thank you for your good singing, and what a joy to speak and sing those words together. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This was certainly the response of the Apostle Paul as we read his introduction here in Romans chapter 1. He was a man who knew his calling. He knew exactly what he was living for. It was pretty clear pretty abundantly clear in these opening verses as we heard them read together. This is a question that is on many of our minds. What's my purpose? Paul begins by saying things like, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. How would, how would you open a letter like this? Lance, just a guy <laughs> doing stuff, you know, how do you think of yourself, right? How do you identify yourself? This is a question that many in our world are asking. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What's my identity? Many like to think that they can kind of define it themselves, and it's this process of finding yourself, so on and so forth. But what about you as a Christian? What's your calling? What's your purpose in life? Do you know what it is? As we study just this introduction to this rich, rich letter, we're going to notice through Paul's own uh, identification, his own introduction, how we too find our identity in the gospel, that it's a calling, and it helps us understand the very reason we're here, what we should live for. The book of Romans is such a powerful book. Some of you have already pointed out to me that it's your favorite, that you're excited to study it together. I am too. It's a great book because its focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul begins to break down for these Roman believers. It's clear in the opening that's who he's writing to, the, the believers in Rome. Paul actually hadn't met them yet. He, he doesn't know them yet. We understand from the book of Acts that he does eventually make it to Rome as a prisoner and, and we assume had the opportunity to meet some of these believers, but, but there's many of them that he does not know. There are a few of them that he does know. He sends all sorts of greetings towards the end of the letter. It's written most likely from the city of Corinth and Probably during his three months in Greece, we read about that in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. We don't know a lot about the Roman church. It's interesting, he's writing to a group of believers that he'd not met yet, he'd not been to Rome yet, so it's obvious to us that Paul didn't start that church, which having studied the book of Acts together, we know is kind of a unique thing. <laughs> a lot of churches that were started by Paul. So how in the world did this church in Rome come to be? Well, we can't say for sure but Acts chapter 2 points out that there were Jews, visitors, who traveled from even as far as Rome and came to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, the Jewish feast. And it was that very Pentecost that the Spirit came and thousands came to faith in Christ. And so we can assume that some of those at least were from Rome and went back and began to establish churches there. In fact, we later in the book of Acts meet Aquila and Priscilla, and we're told that they're from Rome. I mean, we don't know how they came to Christ specifically, but, but that they're from Rome. They'd been expelled by Claudius, and so begin to join uh, Paul in his ministry in Corinth and in that area for a period of time. And eventually, they go back to Rome, and by the end of the book of Romans, we learn that they're actually hosting a small gathering of believers, a church in their home. And so Aquila and Priscilla are among the believers to whom Paul is writing in the book of Romans. He highlights the gospel in this book. And that's significant to me because this is not an evangelistic letter. It's evangelistic in the sense that it's about the gospel, but he's not writing to unbelievers. He's describing the riches and the depths of the gospel to those who already know Christ as Savior. 
And that highlights something for us. Yes, the gospel is powerful to save, but it's not something we move past. The gospel is something that continues to enrich the life of the believer on a daily basis for the entirety of our lives, and it should shape us as a people. And so I hope that's one of the things that God does in our church as we work through this rich letter. The introduction probably climaxes in verses 16 and 17 where I think we find the theme of the book. They're verses you're familiar with. I'll read them aloud uh, so you can help gain some context for the whole letter. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul is getting ready to expound on the rich truths of the gospel, the power of God for salvation, not only to save us, but also to shape us. And so our theme as we work through this book will be saved and shaped by the gospel. That we would be a people, that we would be a church, that we would be individuals, that we would be a body that is saved and shaped by the gospel. Now, a couple other words of introduction before we dive into today's text. Paul uses logic to describe the gospel. And it may be that you've read the book of Romans before and maybe read it quickly and felt like, oh man, this is, this is difficult to track along with. I'm having trouble following his argument here. One of the reasons it can feel that way at first is that Paul uses a lot of clauses and prepositions. So his, his phrases are all attached to one another. In fact, verses one through seven are one sentence. How do you like that? So it, it can be difficult when reading quickly to track along with what Paul is saying. What we're going to try to do is, as we work through the book of Romans, learn how to read it. Learn how to understand the logic Paul uses in the book of Romans. And I I encourage you, if you will just slow down and track his prepositions and what they're connected to and what the clauses mean, if you just slow down and look at those things, it's actually very clear writing and not too difficult to understand. And I think you'll be encouraged as you gain that skill, that tool, as we work through it together. So, As we begin this introduction, I mentioned already we see a a life that is just shaped by the gospel. Paul describes his own life, and it's very clearly, uh, it's been completely changed by God's gospel work. And so we're going to use that as our theme today as, as we think about this text and try to make application in our lives that it's important, friends, that you and I respond to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ We're going to see how clearly the Apostle Paul responded to the call of the gospel. It's important that we do the same. And each section that we study together will help us understand how we do that. How how are we supposed to respond to the call of the gospel? How, how, How does it make a difference in our lives? What is that call that it makes to us? And how should it shape us in a similar way to which it shaped the Apostle Paul. Well, in verse 1, we, we just see how Paul describes himself, and, and, and we're going to notice that the gospel has done something powerful in Paul's life. It's transformed him as a person. I mean, we just studied the book of Acts together and, and saw how Paul was, yes, zealous, but his zeal led to murder and persecution of the church. Women and children included. I mean, he was a violent and harsh man, opposed to Christ. But as we read verse 1, clearly that has changed. And so, number one today, we're going to recognize the power of the gospel. The gospel transforms. Paul is just one example of that. He went from persecutor and murderer and violent to one who had become the slave of Christ, as he said. Notice the three phrases he uses for himself. He says, first of all, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant literally is just slave. Uh, There are a couple words that can be used for the term slave, but again, this is just one of the common terms for the word slave. 
And so Paul is saying, again, this, is, this completely predates uh, the slavery we had in the United States, so that's not what's to come to mind. Paul instead is using the term in relationship to Jesus as his master, Jesus as his Lord. And so he's saying, look, I am fully devoted to Christ, my master. He's Lord of my life, and I'm ready to do whatever Jesus calls me to. That's what he means by slave of Jesus Christ in some senses, truly owned by the Lord Jesus because he was bought with the blood of Christ. So Paul's ready to be obedient to the Lord, to serve him. Not only that, next he says, called to be an apostle. The word called means, means chosen or selected. And indeed, we look at Paul's life, he, he really was selected, wasn't he? I mean, he's just on the road to Damascus and God reaches into his life. Jesus literally appears to him and calls him to not only salvation, but then after some training, sends him, that's what the word apostle means, to be sent, sends him to carry the gospel message. Now, through the New Testament, that word apostle began to mean more than just a sent one. It, there was a special group, there were, there were many who claimed to be apostles, and so in some of Paul's writings, he actually sort of differentiates those who are true apostles from false apostles, and it was those who, who saw the resurrected Christ, were taught by him. And were sent by him. And not everyone could make that claim. Paul did. Different than the others, but uniquely spent time with Christ and was sent to bear the gospel. Finally, it says he's separated to the gospel of God. That means he's been set apart for a specific task. God had set him apart to the gospel itself. To be one who would preach it. To be one who would carry its message. Paul had been set apart for that task. It had transformed his life. Everything about him was centered around what God had done in saving him. Jesus was his Lord, and so he calls himself a slave of Christ. Jesus had sent him to a task, and so he says, hey, I was called to be an apostle. God had brought him out of his sin, separated him out in order to take that gospel message to the lost. All of these things dictate Paul's life, powerful transformation. I remember uh, when I learned about uh, chemicals that were powerful, things that made powerful changes in other things. Uh, It's actually a story about laundry. When I was in college, for the first time, I had to apply the many lessons my mother had gave me, had given me about laundry and, and how to do laundry. And so uh, you know, as a freshman in college, for the first few times, I'm like, okay, it's, it's been long enough, <laughs> time to do some laundry, the, the pile has grown large, I have only a few pieces of clothing left in the drawers, probably time to do it. And a, a few items of clothing had been stained. Now, I knew enough to know that I should not bleach the clothes that had color, okay? So, You'll be very impressed. I had separated out the whites from the colors and put them in the laundry. And uh, the stained whites, I thought, okay, now these things, th- these are the ones that need the bleach. And so I got all the, uh, the whites into the, the washer, and I poured that cup full of detergent on top. And then I poured the bleach on top of that and then began to fill the laundry. Some of you are already nodding, knowing what has happened so I ran the washer, thinking everything would be fine, and began to pull the whites out, and some of them had holes, and uh, the bleach had actually eaten through the clothing because I had missed a very crucial step. When you add bleach, you fill the water first so that the bleach doesn't burn through the clothing, right? Forgot that lesson. I learned the power of bleach, but bleach can't do everything. Have you ever tried to get blood out of a, oh, let's just pick a soccer uniform, for instance, Yes, it's difficult. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I learned another important lesson about a powerful chemical during my time in college playing soccer. Human saliva has enzymes that breaks down blood. And so you spit on the uh, hypothetical uniform and rub the blood stain out, and voila, problem solved. Unless you've been eating Cheetos before you spit. (laughs) In which case, you just have another stain to work with. 
We learn lessons like these along the way about the power of different chemicals and how they affect different things and stains and so forth. Those lessons stick with us because they change the way we look at things. I don't think I ever made that mistake with bleach again. Maybe the Cheetos mistake. But anyway, we learn our lessons when we see powerful things and we see the transformation in Paul's life and it's a reminder to us that the gospel is truly powerful. It changes lives. It completely transforms. You've heard other powerful testimonies, right? A gangster leaves his life of crime to follow Jesus. A drug addict comes clean. An alcoholic quits cold turkey. There's so many powerful stories of gospel transformation. But if you're saved, you need to remember that your testimony is powerful too. The gospel is always life-changing. A person goes from death to life, from slavery to sin to slavery to Christ, from no purpose to the greatest purpose of all, from an enemy of God to a child of God. As you grow and grow as a Christian, you'll see more and more of the sin rooted in your heart, and you'll see all the more clearly what God saved you from even if you hadn't had the chance yet to do it. God's grace is so large. The gospel is powerful and it's transforming. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever lose sight of that. Do you see yourself through the lens of the gospel? That you're a sinner saved by grace. That you're loved by God. That nothing you have done or will do can change your standing before God. You have value and you have purpose. Do you see that God has chosen you, not just to be saved, but for a task, for a purpose? God saved you to make you His own, to bring, you, uh, to bring glory to His name by the riches of His kindness, to bless you and to cause you to bless others, to give you purpose and to share the beautiful riches of the gospel with everyone you encounter. The gospel changes everything. So, for instance, one young man facing temptation applies gospel truth by reminding himself, yes, I've committed that sin so many times before, but no, it's not who I am. I'm saved. I'm a child of God, and I have the power to say no to this this time. Recognize the power of the gospel. As the Apostle Paul continues in verses 2 and 4, it's almost as if he mentions the gospel of God and then he's kind of like, okay, well now I have to talk about that. And so verses 2 through 4 are about the gospel. He, He breaks down the message of the gospel, focusing specifically on the person of Jesus Christ. And it's just a, a rich explanation of who Jesus was and what he did to be our Savior. And so as we prepare to understand verses 2 through 4, here's what we're going to see together as a, as a second way that we can respond to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is to know the message of the gospel. One of the ways we can respond well to the call of the gospel is to know the message of the gospel. See, the gospel calls us to be proclaimers of its message, and so we need to know it. It's almost like Paul is intentionally reviewing that for the Roman believers, he says, I'm separated to the gospel of God, and, you know, parentheses, in case you forgot, let's review. And so in 2 through 4, he says the following. First of all, which he promised, that's looking back to the very previous words, the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, we've gotten into those phrases with prepositions, so ask yourself those questions. What do each of those descriptive prepositions point back to, right? Which he promised. Well, there's, it's pointing to the gospel of God before through his prophets. So God had given clues, he'd given information about this coming gospel through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so we can look back to the Old Testament and see So many examples of prophecies from God that point us to gospel truth. Just to mention a few, right? You've got Isaiah 53, for instance, where Isaiah points to the Lamb of God 
who will carry the sins of his people on his shoulders. Or, or we look, could look to Moses, who prophesied about the prophet to come, who would lead God's people perfectly. Or we could look to David, who in a number of the Psalms served as a prophet, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. You see, prophecies about the gospel are all through the Old Testament. God pointed to these things. It's not some new idea or some uh, plan B that unfolded as people began to reject Jesus. No, this has been the plan from the beginning. Paul continues to explain in verse 3. What gospel is this? It's concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. There's another phrase that points back to the gospel. It's the gospel about Jesus Christ, written by God, focused on Jesus, right? Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. But then what's He say? Our Lord. Just a reminder, He's writing to believers who also should see Jesus as Lord in their lives. About Jesus, our Lord Having mentioned Jesus, he begins to talk more about Jesus now. Notice the rest of verse 3. Jesus our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul refers to Jesus and explains that First of all, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. It's almost like he's referencing his earthly life, right? He's always been the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's already mentioned that. That's from eternity past. But then he was born. He lived life as a man. And specifically, he was born of the seed of David. This is meant, I think, to be a reference to one of the prophecies that Paul has just referred to in the Old Testament. God had promised to David, and David wrote about it a number of times, that there would be one from his lineage who would reign over Israel. In fact, David writes specifically about it in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, so David says, God the Father said to my Lord, my King, my Master, Jesus. So there's this prophecy about the Messiah there in Psalm 110. So Jesus was born of the lineage of David. So he fulfills that promise as a man according to the flesh. But not only that, the Apostle Paul tells us more now, and declared to be the Son of God with power. So he's always been the Son of God, but now the Apostle Paul's talking about when he was declared, or the word could be translated, appointed the Son of God with power. There's a number of ways to interpret this, and it's difficult to say for sure which way we take this. Is this talking about just his physical body was of the lineage of David, and then on the other hand, we're talking about that his spiritual life was one of, of power, spirit of holiness, or are we talking about his time before his death and resurrection, which was ultimately defined by weakness, he was a man, and as he lived his life, he was ultimately rejected and taken to the cross. Now, there were miracles and great power that Jesus put on display to identify himself as king, but it ultimately ended in death. But then starting with his resurrection, we have Jesus then declared or appointed as the Son of God with power, conquered sin and death, raised by the Holy Spirit. I think it is a reference to the Holy Spirit here. Some of your Bibles even have a capital S and tells you what the interpreters thought it meant as well. And so you have the triune God now participating in gospel truth. This is the gospel of God planned by him concerning the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the Spirit participates in the announcement, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the Son of God with power. He died in our place and he rose from the grave and he's coming again. I love how Paul just gets excited about the gospel. Oh, now that I mentioned the gospel, let me say a few things. It, you know, verses one through six form for us in a normal letter the part where we would just say, from Lance. Paul has six verses here, and he gets into the gospel. I just love that. Right? He doesn't get to the to Rome until verse 7. <laughs> so 2 through 4, he, he explains the message of the gospel, the, the power of Jesus Christ. 
to be raised from the grave. Now we know about the gospel message, 1 Corinthians 15, also written by the Apostle Paul, actually written before the book of Romans, makes it clear where the Apostle Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, by which you are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so, again, you see these gospel truths here. He's the promised one. His resurrection obviously makes clear that he died as well, paying for our sins and conquering sin and death the victorious Son of God. Thus, the triune God are a part of the message of the gospel. Paul knows it well, and he wants these believers in Rome to know it well, too. It's amazing to me, sometimes as Christians, we're, we're sort of unfamiliar with the gospel. We, we might know it means good news, but uh, it, it's difficult to, of course, can it ever fully be grasped? Okay, well, maybe not. And so maybe sometimes that, well, then I'll just keep to the basics, right? But I think it's important that as believers, we study to know more of the gospel. And it's something for all of us to know and study. There was an experiment or a study done in 1973. It divided participants into two groups, all having to do with chess. Chess masters were in one group, and novices were in the other group. And each individual in the two groups was given a limited amount of time to look at a chessboard and recall as many piece locations as they could. And so the chess pieces would be mixed up. They were first mixed in a recognizable pattern, meaning like a game had been half played, and so pieces were in you know, the right spots, so to speak. Um, other times, they were displayed randomly, meaning no game would ever lead to that pattern, and the pieces were just kind of all over the board. Well, on average, the chess masters remembered 19 piece locations, and the novices remembered only nine, about half. And so at first, they began to wonder, well, is this, this maybe just proves the theory that chess masters are just smarter than the novices. They're better at remembering. They're just gifted in that way, and they can remember things more easily. But in the follow-up study, they used the random pattern of chess pieces and discovered that both groups only remembered on an average three pieces, both chess masters and novices. When the pieces were randomized, they could only remember three. And they found that people who had never played chess had about the same results. What this revealed is that the chess masters remembered more, not because they were just naturally smarter, but because they had studied the game of chess more. They recognized games and gameplay, and when they looked at the board, it made sense to them. They understood why a piece was in this place or that place or that place. And so it wasn't that their memory was better, was that they had studied the game of chess more than the novices. We tend to think that some people are naturally better at certain things, and, and it's true, that's often out there. We, we use this a lot with uh, remembering people's names, right? I think everyone I've ever met has said something along the lines of, I'm just not good with names. Well, that makes like 100% of us, I think, right? What's interesting about that is that sometimes it's just a matter of not studying it more. Now, I'm not saying there's no uh, natural giftings out there and there's, there's no extra smarts and things like that. Sure, that can all come into play. But I think with the gospel, sometimes we excuse ourselves. It's actually something for everybody. It's something that we can all understand. It's something we're all intended to study and know. And we can. Know the message of the gospel. This begins, of course, with the facts of the gospel, to know what, it, what the good news actually is. What specifically does a person need to believe in order to be saved? Well, again, Paul lays it out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, that he died on, our sin, died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the grave. That's the good news. The good news also has a context, and we're going to see it played out in the book of Romans, that 
There's a God who created the world to whom we are accountable, that we've sinned against this God and are therefore under his condemnation, that the gospel is then therefore the solution to our sin problem, saves us from our sins and gives us the righteousness of God and peace with God. We'll get into that clearly in chapters 2 and 3 and enjoy seeing Paul's explanation of those truths. But I love how Paul's explanation here is focused on Jesus. And so as you know and learn the gospel, don't just learn the facts. Become enamored with the Savior of the gospel. That as you study what he did for you, you grow in your love for him, your affection for him. This may be the greatest benefit of studying the gospel of all. So that at the mention of the name of Jesus, like the Apostle Paul here in verses 2 through 4, now that I mentioned Jesus, let me tell you a little about him. I was born according to the seed of David and declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the grave, according to the Holy Spirit. You know, it's just at any time Jesus is mentioned, we get a little excited and ready to talk about him. Let the gospel and your knowledge of the gospel lead to love for Jesus Christ. For example, maybe an elderly saint in the church realizes that though she's been a Christian for her whole life, she, she's not spent time studying the gospel and realizes she doesn't fully grasp it. And she's a believer and, and, and knows the basic truths, but wants to learn more about the gospel. And so she invites a friend to meet her for coffee and Wonders if the friend would enjoy just digging into the scriptures about what, what the gospel is and what it means and how it affects our lives. And so they begin meeting on a regular basis and just delighting in what God has done in Christ. Now, as Paul continues in verses 5 and 6, you're going to notice he kind of comes back now to his life. <laughs> Jesus now is going to do something in Paul's life, and so Paul's going to talk about how this led to him receiving grace and apostleship, to begin declaring the gospel among all nations. And so this teaches us about the, the, the mission of the gospel. God reaching into Paul's life had led to a mission. So one of the ways we respond to the call of the gospel in Jesus Christ is to accept the mission of the gospel, to be on task with what God has called us to do. He mentions the following things in verses 5 and 6. He says, through him, now remember, pause there, who are we talking about? The most recent antecedent would be Jesus Christ, Son of God, the one he's talking about in verses 3 through 4. It could be referring to the Holy Spirit, I understand that, but the focal point of verses 3 and 4 seems to be Jesus. So through Jesus, because of what Jesus did, Paul had received grace and apostleship. It's almost like a, a dual gift here. The, the grace is the help of God, the, the favor of God in his life, and also apostleship. God had gifted Paul with this role of being an apostle. This was a unique thing. It's not something for us today. There were a limited number of them, and when they passed away, there's no longer an office in the early church. And so it was a unique role in Paul's life, but all of it was sourced in the grace of God in him. What was this apostleship for? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul answers that question. Grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Paul had been made an apostle so that people from all nations, every ethnic group, would trust in Christ as Savior. And he refers to that in a unique way. He calls it the obedience of the faith. The gospel is a truth statement. It's a proposition. And there's a sense in which when we believe it, what we're doing is we're agreeing with it. We're submitting to its truth. We are obeying the faith. The Apostle Paul referred to it a number of ways in this way, that to believe the gospel is to obey the faith. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians, uh, I think it's chapter 1, verse 8. And so Paul's calling as an apostle was so that people from all over the globe would submit to the truth of the gospel, would believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and begin living for Him. To what end, you might ask? Well, the apostle Paul points out, for His name. 
for the name of Christ, for the glory of the one who died and rose again, that all people would bring glory to Jesus Christ by trusting in him for salvation and being those who live for his name. Faith in the gospel, that obedience to the faith is for him. And just like when we believe in the gospel, we are submitting to it and obeying the faith, that trusting in the gospel also leads to obedience, doesn't it? When we understand who Jesus is and what he did, there's no other response than to say, yes, Lord, I'll live for you. It's what we sang together in When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Now, this is all good and fine for the Apostle Paul, right? He's the one who received the apostleship. But notice what he says in verse 6. Among whom, among who? Well, the all nations who were submitting to the faith or obeying the faith. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So he's come full circle now and he comes all the way back to the Romans. Look, I have been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace to proclaim the gospel that people from all nations would obey the faith, that they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Among those from all nations, we find you, the Romans. You are the called of Jesus Christ. You have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, which means that he called you to faith in Christ. You see, salvation is a calling. It's God reaching into our lives and plucking us out of our sin and our mess by the truth of the gospel. Now, we'll work at understanding that more fully as we work our way through the book of Romans. But what Paul has done here is he said, look, just like I've been describing to you how I'm called and how I've turned my life around to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, you too are called. You also have a calling from Jesus for the obedience of the faith in all nations for the sake of his name. It's like he's implying that they need to be ready to accept their mission from Christ as well, just as he has. Most of you have had the opportunity to try out for something at some point along the way. Right? Maybe a soccer team or a choir or a play or a band or whatever else. Right? You've auditioned and maybe hoped you would get a part or be on the team or whatever else. Most organizations like that that have tryouts uh, come to the end of the tryouts. The, the coach or the person in charge makes their selections and then somewhere they post a list of who's made the team. And it's hard to forget the, the fear and intrepidation, the nerves that are kind of on your mind and heart as you approach that list from afar and, you know, begin searching for your name. Is it there? Did I make the team? Am I on the list? I remember one such experience with this uh, was w one of the soccer teams that I was on. Uh, well, wasn't on at the time. And so we'd gone through the tryout process. And, you know, when you're trying out for something, you're sort of assessing everybody else who's there too, and you're trying to figure out, yeah, I think I'll make the team, or, oh boy, this one's going to be tight, you know, we'll see. Well, this was one of those occasions where, you know, of course, trying not to be proud, I sort of was thinking to myself, yeah, I think I got this one in the bag, right? You know, I think, I think this one's going to work out okay. And so I remember approaching the list of who was on the team, you know, this time with a, maybe an air of confidence in my step and looking down through the names, which typically was pretty easy. Last name started with A, so it was normally near the top. Huh. That's odd. Well, maybe they spelled my name wrong and put it in the wrong spot. Scanning further down the list. Hmm. It's not there. Okay. Well, this is interesting. So over the next few days, I began to think all this through and wonder, now, how do I handle this? Uh, it appears I did not make the team, but I was pretty sure I was going to make the team. Maybe that's just my pride speaking. I, didn't, you know, I talked with my parents and talked to some other friends and so forth. And like, well, if you really think you're supposed to be on the list, maybe just go talk to the coach and just, or you can at least ask him, you know, why you didn't make the team and can he help you out as a player and so forth. Okay, I'll do that. So I went and talked to the coach. Coach, hey, I saw my name wasn't on the list. What? Well, yeah, I wasn't on the list, and I just wondered if you could help me out. No, you're, you're on the team, man. 
What? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I must have forgotten to put your name on the list. <laughs> wow, now that was an emotional roller coaster. See, there's this fear and intrepidation and all that goes on into that, you know, wondering if we made it or didn't make it. And, you know, of course, all of that worked out in that scenario. There were plenty of other teams I did not make. But in some senses, this is how we can view the gospel. We didn't even try out for it. In fact, we did everything we could to not be on the team. We made ourselves completely unworthy of the team, siding with Satan himself, making ourselves the enemy of God. The calling of Jesus Christ, salvation, is when he reaches over to the enemy team and says, I want you. I'm going to set my love upon you. I'm going to forgive your sins by my death on the cross. I'm going to turn you from dead to alive. And then I'm going to put you to work for my glory. And I'm going to help you. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to give you a home for eternity. And I'm going to dress you in my perfect righteousness. And in that eternal home where you'll be with me forevermore, I'm going to give you a share in my inheritance. You'll be called a child of the king. Whoa. This is the call of the gospel, but it doesn't just end there. Then we get to go to work for him. We're on the team. We're, we're his representatives, his ambassadors to share that same message, and there's never been better news in the history of the universe, and we get to share it. So the call of the gospel is not just to be saved, but to be on mission. That leads us finally to verse 7. Where number four, we realize we, our identity in the gospel, just like it changed Paul, now he's saying it's changed you too. <laughs> Notice what he calls the Roman believers here in verse seven. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's written to everybody who's trusted in Christ in Rome, and the likelihood is there are multiple churches throughout the city of Rome that have, that have started at this point. We know, like I said, one of them met in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. So it's to all of them. Beloved of God, there's the first part of their identity. They've already trusted in Christ as Savior, so what's this mean about this? They're loved by God. It's part of who they are now. God has set their love upon them. That can't be changed, it can't be unearned, it can't be broken. They are forever loved by God. Next, he says that they are called to be saints. Uh, this word combines two special ideas. The one is called, which is that idea of chosen or selected. The other word is the word saints, and this becomes a common word for believers in the New Testament, and it literally means set apart ones or holy ones. And so this selection of Christ to be a saint, to be a holy one, is to be a set-apart one, specifically toward righteousness or holiness. And so this is another part of their identity. And we know this truth about the gospel, that because of what Jesus did, dying for our sins and rising again, our sins have been washed away. We've been given, granted, imputed the righteousness of God in Christ so that positionally we are the holy ones, we are the righteous ones. Whoa! And then the rest of the Christian life is spent growing toward that goal, so that more and more and more the character, the virtues, the righteousness of Christ would be lived out on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, we fail so often, and Christ's forgiveness is steady and sure, and the Spirit's help is permanent and effective and powerful and we make changes day by day and our inner man is renewed day by day and we become more and more like Jesus. It's a process as well, isn't it? But this is part of our identity. It's who we are, set apart to be holy. And then he says at the end, a typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> Paul, Paul's greeting is this blessing from God of grace and peace. Now, peace was a very common Jewish greeting. You've heard it before. Shalom, right? It means peace. But he combines with it now maybe a New Testament greeting. We could add to that grace. Grace and peace, where do they come from? From God, and I love this, our Father. Paul has spent the introduction kind of on a collision course with the Romans, saying this is what's happened in my life and the gospel, and you're also the called of God. And we have grace and peace from our Father. So though he's not met them, there's this fellowship and unity with them. Grace and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted them to accept their mission and be reminded that their identity was fully capable of helping them along on this mission. Grace and peace from their Father so that they could live and serve in their identity as well. Friend, if you've trusted in Christ yourself, I want you to know that you are loved by God. That's a permanent part of your identity. You may not always feel it. You may not always believe it. But it doesn't change the fact that God loves you. In fact, if you've never trusted in Christ here today, I want you to know that God has shown his love for you by sending his son Jesus Christ to be your savior. It may be that you're not yet a child of God and you're still on the enemy team. Can I tell you that God has shown you his love by sending Jesus? And that today you have the opportunity to have your sins forgiven, to be dressed in the righteousness of the Son of God, to be called a child of God, if you would just place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You can do that today. And experience the transforming gospel power in your life. And join your brothers and sisters in Christ in the family of God. We together are members of his family. As you look around the room, you see brother, sister, father, son, mother, daughter in the life of this church, those who've trusted in Christ. This, in fact, the New Testament describes as our primary family. These people, not to the ignorance of our other family, but that this is where it is right here. And so love and enjoy your brothers and sisters in Christ Remember that you're set apart to be holy. Walk worthy of your calling, as the Apostle Paul will say in other places. Our Christian lives should be on a steady trajectory toward holiness. I wonder, what sins are you putting off? What virtues of Christ are you putting on? Can you pinpoint right now the ways that God is making you more like his son? And then lean on his grace and peace, which never fail, from our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Realize your identity in the gospel. This question of identity rings true in our society today. I was listening to the radio recently and NPR had a little special on a song called What Was I Made For that has become very popular. It's in a recent movie and it's been nominated for multiple Grammys. It's written by an artist named Billie Eilish and it's about identity. Uh, verse 1 goes like this, I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now. What I was made for, what was I made for? Taking a drive, I was an ideal. I looked so alive, turns out I'm not real. Just something you paid for, what was I made for? I think I forgot how to be happy, something I'm not, but something I can be, something I wait for, something I'm made for, something I'm made for. The song never answers the question, but it highlights a question that has resonated with the hearts of so many people, and the song has, of course, become very popular because of it. What was I made for? Can I close by answering the question for you? The question the song doesn't answer? You were made for your God. He made you wonderful. He made you just how he wanted you to be. He made you to be in relationship with him forevermore. That relationship was broken by your sin. 
My relationship with him was broken by my sin. My life will never be right until I'm restored to that relationship with God, the very relationship I was made for. He wanted me. He wanted a relationship with me, and I messed it up. But God, in his deep love for me, sent his son Jesus to fix the problem that I made. The son, the holy son of God, divine, became man so that he could live the perfect life, the life that I did not live, and therefore take upon himself my sins and your sins. He paid for those sins in full, satisfying the just wrath of God, the anger from God that I deserved because of the way I had rebelled against him. Jesus paid it in full. And then not only that, he rose again from the grave, signifying that his payment was in full, that he's the son of God with power, and that all that he has promised is true. And the promise is this, that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation has their sins washed away, is dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and is restored to right relationship with God. Friend, that's what you were made for. And when that relationship with God is restored, he sets you on a mission for his glory, to be a light in the darkness, to represent him on this earth until the day that you arrive in your true home with him forevermore. Now that's the meaning of life. Father, we thank you so much for this rich passage, just the introduction to the book of Romans, but we look forward to all the different ways you will unfold gospel truth in our lives, help it to shape us. And I pray that even today we begin to live out our identity in the gospel, to be a people not just saved by it, but shaped by it. Magnify your name. We pray for any here today that do not know their, their true identity or not living their identity in Christ, that even today they place their faith in him. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to God be the glory.